This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adabita. And I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. We're kicking off a bit of a festive run of episodes today that are taking a look back at some of the best books of 2023. And some of these episodes might be coming to you just in time for a bit of gift inspo for a few stocking fillers too. It's the Intelligent Squared Holiday Reads. Yes, we've had an incredible array of guests on the podcast and in our live events across 2023. So we're revisiting some of our favourites across these selected episodes during December. What's coming up in the next hour, Faye? Well, for this episode, we're going to be learning how to win every argument with Mehdi Hassan, and we'll be hearing a bit about the near future of AI with Mustafa Suleiman. Well, looking forward to that, but first we're going to jump back to September when we were joined by author and activist Naomi Klein. Naomi was here to discuss Doppelganger, her book that jumps down the rabbit hole of conspiracy and the disjointed political age that we live in. The book focuses on these uncertain times by using the metaphor of a mirror world. And as a starting point, Naomi uses another well-known writer with a name very similar to hers, but whose views couldn't be more different from her own. That writer's called Naomi Wolf. Confused yet? Well, Naomi Klein spoke to journalist Ruchira Sharma to explain more. So it's a very different kind of book for me. Um, I usually write pretty conventional nonfiction, you know, thesis, argument, argument, thesis, argument. Um, this is more of a mix of, of memoir and cultural analysis. Um, it's an exploration of, um, of doubling, of doubles, of doppelgangers. It begins with having what it's like to have, have a doppelganger, somebody who much of the world thinks is you, um, but is not you. And, um, and then just kind of uses that as a device to understand some political dynamics where um, our world is sort of doubling and we are mirroring um, the people that we disagree with, whatever they're against, we're for, whatever, whatever they're for, we're against. That's really kind of becoming clearer and clearer in U.S. politics. Um, and ultimately, I think what the book is about is the doppelganger that I most fear and that I think a lot of us fear, which is, which is the way whole societies have a kind of an evil twin version of themselves and the sort of the way we know societies can flip and become um, much uglier, more dangerous versions of themselves. Not to idealize our world right now, but it can get worse. Um, oh, so no. yeah. <laughs> so it's about fascism is the short answer. Um, so you use a, a phrase, the mirror world. Mm -hmm. And can you describe what exactly is the mirror world? Is that what you're talking about now? 
Well, so what, what, so the book is, um, it looks at, at the way we double ourselves, you know, through branding, creating like, um, sort of public versions of ourselves or digital versions of ourselves that we perform for others. So sort of partitioning ourselves, um, and it looks at the way AI is creating doubles of our, basically our whole culture. It's sort of a mimicry machine. Um, but by mirror world, um, I'm, I guess I'm talking about conspiracy world um, and my own doppelganger. Um, I mean, people who, people, I don't think she looks like me, but other people confuse, <laughs> confuse us all the time. Um, Naomi Wolf. Um you know, she she um, was sort of evicted from kind of, let's say, like liberal um, society. You know, deplatformed from Twitter uh, multiple times and 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 other social media sites. And you know, she used to be somebody who wrote for you know the Guardian and the New York Times, and um, for various reasons was deplatformed, as she likes to say. And now she pals around with Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson and has become a pretty consequential figure in the on the conspiratorial right. Um, and the mirror element is is that when people get deplatformed from from spaces that are you know more liberal um, you know media spaces spaces or platforms. Mm -hmm there's often the perception that they've kind of disappeared from planet earth yeah. um, because because we don't see them anymore. And I think social media trains us to mute and block and we're just like, you're dead to me, you know? And so when when she was deplatformed, pretty much everyone I knew thought she no longer needed to be paid attention to. But because I was sort of on this rabbit hole journey, I was, I, it really struck me that she had not been deplatformed. In fact, she had a much bigger platform than she, um, than she'd had in years. I mean, she was on Tucker Carlson's show before it was canceled, which had 3 million viewers a night. She was on Bannon's show. It's, you know, one of the biggest podcasts, um, very, very consequential political platform but none of it was visible in our world. So, so you know, the, what, I, what I talk about in the book is it be, being kind of like one-way glass in that we can't see them, but they can see us. In fact, they're obsessed with us. They're watching us very, very closely and they're mirroring us, right? So there's like mirror versions of everything in our world in the mirror world. Like if you get caught, get kicked off Twitter, then you go to Getter. Or, you know, if you get kicked off YouTube, then you go to um rumble or parlor or you know a, a, you know and there's mirror publishing houses now and and um it's very deliberate you know steve bannon talks about how we need our own currency we need you know that we, we can't ever let them erase us again and so that's how we why we need to build this mirror world but there's also a way in which many of the ideas that are important to me as somebody who's been you know part of the left for many years um are being picked up in the mirror world and sort of turned into twisted doppelganger versions of themselves, including the, the fight against fascism. Like all the language gets appropriated and kind of twisted to use for ends that are really not the ends they're intended, including free, freedom of speech, right? Because these are many of the people who are supporting book bans and, um, you know, are very comfortable censoring, um, but they use the discourse of freedom of expression, um, you know, for their own ends. And yeah. yeah. 
So yeah, it's a it's a weird kind of warped mirror. It's a warped mirror world. It isn't just a straight up reflection. It's a weird funhouse mirror. Yeah. Um, but you know, one of the things that I'm, you know, I I think I really tried to be careful about in the book is this sort of default liberal smugness of we're the sane ones, we're the righteous ones, they're the bad people. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of the ideas that they're picking up, they're picking up because they've been left unattended. <laughs> you know, they they have not been, um, you they're not being used to their full effect um, um, by leftists and progressives. Um, and um, yeah, and I think all of us engage in various tactics of unseeing, of distraction, um, and and. I think we're all, you know, conspiracy theories, I'd be interested in your take on it. But I think, you know, a lot of what conspiracy theories do is distract our attention from systemic crises, right? And for that reason, even though conspiracy theorists are always talking about the elites, the elites, they're they're the best friends the elites could ever have because they prevent us from speaking about, they distract us from speaking about systems and they steer us towards the cabal, right? And that's always been the role that conspiracy has played for power. Um, it's better to think of three or four people in a room, um, maybe the Rothschilds or, you know, whatever the, the, the latest iteration of it is, than it is to talk about capitalism and, 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 and the system doing what it was designed to do. Right. Um, so I think, there are many ways of not looking at systems. And I would say that, you know, we're, we're all pretty good at it. <laughs> yeah. I was really struck in the book that you, yeah, you pointed out some of the ways, especially online, we use humor to diminish um, these figures and the power they have. We say, I think there was a phrase, something about a cell phone that you used. Can you remind me what that was? Um, yeah. And do you yeah. think that the way we yeah. joke about them really is not allowing us to take them seriously and, you know, tackle the issue of conspiracies and conspiracy circles and conspiracy impact. And also, what is the wellspring that they are tapping into, right? They're tapping into a sense of deep injustice. They're tapping into a rage at inequality, at, at impunity for, for elites, right? So, so, you know, what I you're referring to that line about cell phones. So specifically, that's referring to um, Wolf's uh, um, propagation of, of this idea that vaccine verification apps were actually about monitoring us and eavesdropping on us and 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 ushering in what she described as like a CC piece, like, like Chinese Communist Party um, uh, system of social credits, right? And she was saying, you know, once you have the vaccine app on your phone, they can listen to your conversations in restaurants. They know when you're in your living room. And um, the response on liberal Twitter was, wait till they hear about cell phones, right? And, you know, the first time I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, well, they hear about that. that's funny, right? Because mm-hmm. of course we're all being monitored by our cell phones, and here they are fixating on this one app. Yeah. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, you know what? It's not funny that we think that our that that, that we all just sort of take it for granted that our phones could be eavesdropping on us or that we're being tracked. But we have normalized that, right? And so, what happens when you normalize something that really shouldn't be normalized? Well, it comes 
it, it, it reemerges in, in what I'm calling the mirror world in this strange way, in this doppelganger way. It's, it's kind of like QAnon and this idea that the elites are like draining our children of their life force, adrenochrome, you know, so that they can stay young forever. That's not happening. But, you know, you can make the argument that, you know, uh, we live in a system that is draining um, our children's futures. Um, and so, you know, the way I put it in the book is, conspiracy theories, these conspiracy theories, because there are some real conspiracies in the world, that's also important to remember. Um, they get the facts wrong, but they get the feelings right. Yes. So I think that that is why this, these ideas that are, that are really unhinged and, and are not attached to reality. No, those vaccine apps were not eavesdropping on us in restaurants. Um, but there are so many issues that are going unaddressed in our culture that it's like we've we've uh, we've abandoned too much territory, and it's too potent to just be left there by the Steve Bannons of the world. Like they're going to move in, you know. It's kind of like what Bannon did in 2016 when he was working for Donald Trump. I mean, arguably he still is, but in 2016, you know, he he was just looking at who had the Democratic Party abandoned, you know, and he saw all these you know white working class men who's factories had been offshored and who were enraged about the trade agreements that they felt had screwed them. And he was like, this is a constituency that, that, that they've abandoned and we're going to, we're going to speak to it. And they didn't really have anything to offer them, but, but leaving, leaving constituency, abandoning people is, is a problem because someone's going to come along and, uh, and fill, fill that space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go back to a point that you just made, because I think it was a really good point about this kind of fear we have around technology in it. I think you kind of mentioned in the book that the fear is real, but obviously, as you said now, they've jumped in on it and they've provided all these reasons, whether it's, you know, um, vaccine apps, monitoring us, all these kind of things. And it's funny that the timing of this, we're recording this in June when mm -hmm. Black Mirror drops, that very real fear around mm -hmm. what the future of tech is. It seems like we've signed a contract, but we don't know what we've signed. And it's, it's leaping forwards and lurching forwards. Yeah. And... I think you label that and you identify that really well. Can you talk about that fear and what that's done for the gap for conspiracy circles? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 the whole tech economy is like those terms of service agreements, right? That go on for pages and pages and pages, and then no you know, no one reads them, and and it's an extract. You know, our, our consent is being <laughs> extracted because we need to like get to the next to the other end of it. Like we have to get online, we have to fill out a form. I mean, everything it happens online now. So we need to, we need to get to the other side. So we consent, except it isn't real consent and we did not read it and we don't know what's in it, but it turns out that we've signed away a whole lot. Right. And, you know, and this is, you know, the, the thesis of Shoshana Zuboff's book, um, the, the, the age of surveillance capitalism, um, that this is really an, uh, a historic enclosure of, of, you know, what, it, I mean, I would say the commons, but also of just ourselves, of, of un, previously unenclosed space, like the relationship between friends, right? It was not previously something that could be, you know, commoditized, right? Yeah. Um, if you were just chatting with a friend, that there would be no way of getting that data. That wasn't data. That was just a conversation. But once it happens on a platform, it becomes data. And if you signed, 
if you signed the, the 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 form that you didn't read, then it turns out that that data isn't yours, and that you are a mind site. You you know that 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 our that our everything in our lives, our our our, our photographs, our chats, our every post, it's all it's all being extracted. And now with AI, it's it, we find out that it's actually being extracted to create kind of doubles of all of us, to create a real mirror world. Like that's what AI is. That's a whole other kind of mirror world. It is just, it's a mimicry machine, right? Yeah. So so all of human culture is just being copied and copied and copied and copied. And and, and then we feel replaced and should, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty, this, it's another way in which being alive today is very destabilizing. Yeah. Um, so is climate change. Um, you know, so is COVID. And conspiracies always surge in moments like this, right? Where we need we need a story to explain our world. And conspiracies are 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 easy to understand theories. Yeah. With yeah, with yeah. evil, evil characters, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's in heroes and then a fight and a cause. Yeah. And the villains and heroes is really interesting because you know, as, like not to harp too much on this, but I am a leftist, <laughs> and and leftists, um, you know, have a theory of capital, have have a theory of um, that 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 much of these symptoms are not because of a plot behind the scenes, but it's actually just a logical outcome of a system that is built to maximize profits. Mm -hmm. And this is why, you know, anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories are often, or you have long been referred to as the socialism of fools, right? Because rather than seeing a system, you imagine a cabal, you imagine this small group um, who are making all the decisions because you don't have a systemic analysis. So I'm familiar with Naomi Wolf having reported on COVID conspiracies. It felt like she was a real leader, shall we say, in that movement. Um, can you explain... To somebody who isn't familiar with her, who she is and why her why her influence is so significant within this scene and within the mirror world and conspiracy circles. Well, I think that her influence is um is significant mainly because of who she used to be or you know who she, who she was um you know when I was in university she was um she was part of what was being called the third wave of feminism. So, you know, I I was a teenager in the 80s it was a very kind of um, lull period for progressive politics. Feminism was sort of, um, it was still happening. There was still all kinds of great work being done, but it was really outside the outside the glare of the media spotlight. I mean, these were this was, you know, the years of Reagan and Thatcher. And then at the dawn of the 90s, along comes Naomi Wolf and a few others. Um, and she had written this book called The Beauty Myth. Um, and it was um, you know, not that innovative in terms of its analysis uh, of, uh, you know, the amount of time, time in particular that, that women were expending to meet a particular beauty ideal. She was making an argument that women's, um, that the successes of the second wave of feminism, um, that had, uh, made it so that m more and more women were going into universities, more and more women were going into the workplace, were being pushed back by this heightened beauty standard so that just as women were breaking through, they were spending so much time trying to look like, as she put it, professional beauties, right? And she was making the argument that 
previously women had not been held to such high beauty standards. Now, obviously that's debatable and, and culturally contingent and so on. Um, but there was, there was no doubt that there was, you know, a rise in anorexia at that time. Um, and it was like the aerobics craze and, and so on. And that, so that book was a huge bestseller mm-hmm. and it really put her on the map. Um, and she went on to become a, a, a consultant for the Democratic Party. Um, and uh, she was married to um, somebody who was a speechwriter for Bill Clinton. And then she was the women's issue advisor for Al Gore when he ran for president. And so she was sort of a fixture on talk shows and things um, uh, in throughout the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and she she had a particular niche around women's bodies um, and sexuality. So after the beauty myths, she wrote a book called Fire with Fire. Then she wrote a book called Misconceptions, which was about young women and sexuality. And then she wrote a book about um, women in childbirth. And so I, in answer to your question about why she had particular influence, um, I think it's because it's because of that previous work and where she really had a big I- I- impact in COVID, where, where you know, where, where, where the data shows she really, um, you know, became a vector of quite a lot of medical misinformation was around the vaccine shedding myth. Um, so NPR did, did, did an investigation of like why it was that so many w- women were suddenly afraid that they were going to become infertile, not if they got the COVID vaccine, but even if they were around somebody who got the COVID vaccine, because it would shed on them. And so they did this data analysis and found that 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 a lot of that misinformation could be traced to a few key tweets by um, other Naomi, as I call her. <laughs> and so I think that at that point, I thought, well, this is you know, there, there's a line that I returned to several times in the book from Philip Ross, Operation Shylock, where he says about his 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 doppelganger who is wrecking, wreaking havoc, um, it's too ridiculous to take seriously and too serious to be ridiculous in the sense that, um, you know, nobody likes being confused with anyone else and, you know, and but we all deal with it and it happens, right? Um, but when the person you're being um, confused with is seemingly spreading, you know, m- medical misinformation that could cause real damage um, and, and cost lives, um, and you're in the middle of a global pandemic, it's sort of, you know, it, it feels like a slightly higher stakes. Naomi Klein there, speaking to Ruchira Sharma about the book Doppelganger, back in September 2023. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. 
That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. What's next on the list, Connor? Well, we're going back to March and our event with journalist, broadcaster, fearless debater, and up until very recently, primetime US news host Mehdi Hassan. Mehdi joined The Columnist and author Jonathan Friedland on stage earlier this year at Conway Hall in London to discuss the shape of journalism, the news and his book, How to Win Every Argument. Let's hear some of that now. As you all know, Intelligence Squared is the home of debate, the classic debate for and against format. So you can imagine when an email arrived in my inbox and said, Intelligence Squared event with Mehdi Hassan, my reaction was, no way. There's no way I'm going anywhere near that. Thank you very much. But I'm lucky to, enough to tell you that I'm not having to debate Mehdi Hassan because that is a losing ticket, believe me. Uh, instead, I'm just my, it's my great privilege tonight to be in conversation with Mehdi. He, uh, he and I have known each other a long time. We're going to do that uh, up here for a bit, about 45 minutes or so, and then we're going to open it up to uh, questions and perhaps something more from all of you, anyone who thinks that they fancy their chances taking on Mehdi Hassan in debate. Tonight could be your moment, as I said. I'm not going anywhere near that, um, but you may want to. So our guest this evening is an award-winning journalist and broadcaster, host of The Mehdi Hassan Show, which airs on both MSNBC and NBC's streaming network, Peacock. His new book is Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading and Public Speaking. It's just out. You cannot move for interviews with Mehdi and publicity, uh, and it has already paid off. As you heard, it's in the top 10. We will, as I say, open up for you to have uh, your chance to put a question to Mehdi, or if you're feeling brave, to take him on in debate. This whole debate thing with you, Mehdi, I mean, are you were, and were you one of those people, because they do exist at school, those kids who are sort of the debate champ, who aged 9 or 10 or 13 or 14 is in the school debating society and honing those skills. When other kids were playing football in the playground, you were there in doing <laughs> debate prep. Is that you? Well, first of all, thank you, Johnny, for doing this event and uh, not deleting the email in your inbox <laughs> when it came in. Uh, thank you all for coming out tonight. This is my uh, sixth public event 
in my second country. I did four in the US, and I've, this is my second one in the UK. But I can honestly say, this is the one I've been looking forward to. This is London. This is my hometown. It's great to see you all. Thank you so much. And for those of you who bought the book and read the book, you'll know that I say that in every city I go to. It's a good way of connecting with the audience from the very beginning. I appreciate all of you turning out tonight. Uh, I didn't know, Johnny, you had so many fans, so thank you for bringing out the big crowd. I appreciate it. Uh, to answer your question, no, I wasn't that person, actually. I didn't really do competitive debating. Right. And even today, I'm not that big a fan of competitive debating. My daughter does high school debate in America, right. which is a big thing. I find it just rule-bound and kind of artificial. Mm. And I wrote the book because I wanted to to talk about the real world and the real life debates. My debates in school were of the unorthodox variety. They were the debates that involved me shouting out the answers to questions, arguing with teachers, and then spending much of the time in the hallway uh, with my parents receiving phone calls from various teachers saying, yes, he knows the answer, but he needs to let other people speak. <laughs> so that was my, ex my experience of debate was not a good one in school. And then I get to university, and even at university, I talk about it in the book, I did Oxford Union debating, the most famous debating side in the world. I was very lucky, privileged to have that opportunity. But even there, I didn't do competitive debating. I did the exhibition debating, the Thursday night with politicians, with Boris Johnson and, and Benazir Bhutto and the like. So it was always more unorthodox. Always, I've always been more interested in the real world application. Yeah, what did you tackle Boris Johnson on? Uh, the uh, debate at the time, Oxford Union every year does an annual debate, this house has no confidence in Her Majesty's government. And uh, at the time, Labour was in power and I was defending, I was defending Tony Blair, how times change. Um, I was defending the Blair government, uh, to be fair, this was 1998 or something, right. way pre-Iraq. Um, and Boris Johnson was there on behalf of Spectator and on behalf of the Conservatives. And I spent the night mocking him. Uh, recently, a Dutch documentary crew, a little clip emerged recently of a thinner, weird-sounding me uh, mocking Boris. Um, and I say in the clip, he makes you laugh, but there's no substance. So I was prophetic there yeah, in, yeah, in my description of Boris Johnson. And then afterwards, I shamelessly went and asked him for an internship at The Spectator, which he weirdly gave to me. So it was a very weird experience. So it worked out for you. It's good that you're outing that about yourself rather than waiting for, waiting for, them for the Daily Mail yeah. or someone similar to do that. So this book, and you say the real world application, when I was reading it, and it's absolutely entertaining and powerfully argued, as you would expect, and very practical in its advice, it really does tell people how to win arguments. Except I was thinking, this is great if you're a politician. This is fantastic if you are somebody who hosts a regular show on cable news. But ordinary, regular people, do they really need this? How is this book relevant for them? So I did start out thinking about kind of politicians, media. You know, we've talked about this for a long time, about some of the deficiencies in our media. I've been quite openly critical of the British media, the American media, especially interviews in America. Mm. Uh, I don't believe they're tough enough, combative enough. Uh, one of the things I've done in the US is try and bring my own style and make it more mainstream, more acceptable, um, you know, getting there little by little. So there is a lot of that in there for people in our industry and for politicians. And uh, a congressman named Ro Khanna recently tweeted, I plan to buy the book and read it before I go on his show. So maybe I've... Uh, uh, shot myself in the foot. <laughs> but no, I, when I started writing it, I realized this is for everyone. I started doing the research behind kind of styles of argument, looking at the science. There's a lot of science in the book, even though I'm not a science journalist or a scientist, but like some of the things we take for granted, how much actual documented evidence there is for it. And then you realize, actually, no, this is applicable to a general crowd. And I didn't realize I would end up writing such a kind of audience. And I say, I, I've said in interviews, it's, it's, for, it's for the lawyer in the courtroom, yes, with the 12 jurors. Uh, yes, it's for the businessman in the boardroom trying to seal the deal. 
But it's anyone in school who has to speak in front of a classroom. It's someone sitting around the dinner table with their, you know, in America, it's your mad uncle at Thanksgiving. Uh, it's that. Uh, it's it's, it's the, the, not every technique in here is for every argument. People ask me questions, when should you do this, when should you do that? Context matters, I say in the book. Everything is about context. Who is your audience? Who are you trying to convince? Is it a debate or is it an informal conversation? What are you trying to achieve when you stand up in front of a room of people? Are you trying to rhetorically destroy the other person in YouTube fashion? Or are you trying to persuade... Because that may not be so good at a family dinner, I'm thinking. I mean, you might want to destroy a crazy <laughs> MAGA uncle who wants to build a wall. I don't know how your family dinners are. <laughs> but um, I've had some lively family dinners, as some people here will testify. Um, the, but, you know, it, w there's a difference between, as you say, trying to destroy one person in a debate on stage, or just sitting down with someone you care about and trying to change their mind one-on-one. -on -one. The book tries to take you through different scenarios. It's not all... I know the title is Win Every argument, but it's not all rhetorical destruction. I do have a whole chapter in there about the importance of empathy, yep. about putting your feet in the shoes of others, listening empathetically to where someone's coming from. And when I said I was writing a chapter on listening, my wife turned to me and she laughed. She just <laughs> laughed. And then there was a long pause and she said, seriously, you're writing a chapter on listening. You're the worst listener. I said, that's why I have to write this chapter. Because I, you know, I struggle with these things too. I'm not a perfect practitioner of everything in the book, but I'm trying to put together a different skill set. But yes, I believe it's across the board. You go for a job interview, I hope this book will help you. You're trying to negotiate a pay rise, I hope this book will help you. You're trying to convince your friend in the playground that Liverpool is a better team than Chelsea or Man United, I hope this book will help you. I'm going to, we should dive in straight away because as I said, it's very, very practical. Uh, people are often told in arguments to play the ball, not the player, um, and to avoid ad hominem, personal attacks. And you give contradictory advice to that. You say you should play the ball and the player. Um, we're going to see an example of that in a moment, but just give us, an, just explain why you think it's legitimate to have a go at the person you're yeah. arguing with rather than just their argument. So again, context matters. I'm not saying do it across the board willy-nilly wherever you are, just go attack someone. That's not a wise move. As I say, if you're trying to convince someone one-on-one -on -one in private who you care about, it makes no sense to attack them. That just makes them defensive. But as I say at the start of the book, sometimes your argument, we get so obsessed with what am I going to say to that person that we forget that that person might not be the important person. Hmm. It might be the audience out there that you're trying to appeal to. And in that case, bringing down the credibility, what Aristotle called the ethos of that person, which is a key part of argument, the appeal to your own personal credibility. Bringing theirs down and yours up is an obvious thing to do. It's a no-brainer in an argument where the audience wants to know who to trust, who to believe, who to rely on. So it depends, again, on the context of where you are before you kind of unleash. You know, I, I, had jo I had John Bolton on my show a while back, and I knew, we talked about Iraq, I wasn't going to change John Bolton's mind on Iraq. That would be mad. But what I wanted to do was have the audience at home see that his arguments were poor and that he's being held to account for the first time. So in that case, you can address the person. And what I say in the book is there are three types of ad hominem attacks. One is the abusive ad hominem, what Donald Trump takes to an extreme, the name calling. You're ugly, as he says. I'm not saying to do that. Don't go call people names. But for example, calling somebody a liar, that's seen as off limits in our House of Commons. You can't say it. It's right. unparliamentary language. I'm saying if somebody has a history of lying and you're on a public platform with them, it is your obligation to tell the crowd, don't trust that person. They have a history of dishonesty. They have a history of deception. Now, that's technically an ad hominem attack. It's not relevant to the argument, but it is relevant to 
how much scrutiny and trust the audience should put in that person. So I say it's relevant. The circumstantial ad hominem, the conflict of interest. Um, I don't believe in climate change, says the scientist who is funded by the fossil fuel lobby. Wouldn't you want to reveal to the crowd that the dude who just told you that climate change isn't real is ExxonMobil's guy? That is a relevant point to make. Now, again, you could say that's got nothing to do with the science around climate change, but it, is, it does deserve greater scrutiny. And the third one I talk about is the tu quo quo, uh, you too, the hypocrisy argument, which is one I deploy a lot with politicians as an interviewer. Politician A comes on the show and says, do this, and you say, but you don't do it. Uh, classic example, Republicans who say, ban all abortions while they secretly pay a mistress to have an abortion. Yeah. Now you could say, technically that is irrelevant to the substance of the argument over abortion, whether the fetus has a right to life, whether the fetus feels pain, is irrelevant, right? That's the substance, I agree. But it is relevant in an argument to be able to say to someone, if you can't adhere to the principles you claim to stand for, what does that say about your principles? So what I say in this situation is, Judge the moment, judge the relevance. If you're talking about COVID with a doctor and the doctor is saying, trust me, you don't need a vaccine, but that doctor has been discredited in multiple studies, all their predictions have been wrong, then of course you should point that out. If the, if the person you're up against is making a pro hominem argument, trust me, I'm a doctor, trust me, I'm a general, trust me, I'm an economist. It is your obligation as someone interviewing them, debating them, uh, you know, engaging with them to say, well, how's your record on this stuff? It's pretty bad. And people get upset on my show when I bring up their record, but, you know, that's life. And to know the record is crucial. And one yes. of your big uh, points all the way through the book is you have to do your homework, you have to be prepared. Uh, bearing both of those things in mind, Mehdi's insistence on doing the homework and on um, the legitimacy sometimes of taking down the credibility of uh, uh, an interlocutor by reminding them of their record. I want you to have a look at this clip from an Intelligence Squared debate, in fact, um, about uh, Saudi Arabia and its human rights record. This was uh, Mehdi Hassan ta tangling with Mamoun Fandi, who's a pro-Saudi writer and commentator. Let me just make one very quick point to Mamoun. Ma Mamoun, Mamoun, I've got to say this. You talk about Islam and Maududi and Khutub. Uh, the Christian Science Monitor published a piece in the 1990s saying that Egypt shouldn't bow down to Saudi-style Islam. As a student, I saw fundamentalist students go to Saudi Arabia, come back and distribute books. Saudi-style fundamentalism unnerves Egyptians. Saudi influence must be curbed. The author of that piece was one Mamoun Fandi. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. Well done. Well, well done. That's true. That's, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still to my point. I'm still to my point that uh, you know, influencing young and so on through money and other things is is really should be curbed. However, I have to remind you that well, there you are facts. You shouldn't bow to a Saudi-style Islam. Under Mubarak, did. Under Mubarak, and did. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, because it's he was questions weak. Words, which matter. <laughs> I mean. In a case like that, um, he had nowhere left to go after that. Once you, I mean, there's no, there's no more exhilarating line to deploy in an argument, debate, or interview than your words, Mamoun, your mm. words. And people get very upset. I've noticed this. I've had guests get very upset with me during interviews, after interviews. Um, I believe one of my former producers, Al Jazeera English, is here tonight, whose job was to walk guests out of the studio. <laughs> after I'd finished an interview with them. So I have props to Ryan Coles, who I believe is here tonight, uh, who, had to, who had that unenviable task, because people get very annoyed and say, that's a gotcha question. You hear that a lot, Jonathan, mm. in, our, in our line of work. It's a mm. gotcha question. 
And I, again, I push back against that. Nothing wrong with a gotcha question. Yes, I'm trying to get you. I'm trying to hold you to account. Yeah. And they're your words. If you have a problem with your words, maybe you shouldn't have said them. But the point, point I was going to go on to make was the, that was six or seven clicks deep yes. on Google. You say in the book that people too often go for the first page of Google. Yes, and they give up. But you, it took me ages to find that quote. Yeah, yeah. I, dug, I dug deep to find this guy had a backlog of dozens of articles and books going back 20 years. But when you find that gold moment, or when a researcher of mine offers on a show finds it, it's one, of those, it's one of those eureka moments. And it happened with Eric Prince in a famous clip as well, where we found a press release showing that he was working in Xinjiang province. And it was a great moment when we just displayed that And it was air. partly because the researcher, I think, had Googled for the letters PDF, which actually expanded the search, which is <laughs> yes. a very, very good tip, and one I have already stolen myself. You describe in the book the, the thing of conceding a point the other yes. person has made. And you say it's a judo move, yeah. right? And it struck me reading it that, okay, but shouldn't you sometimes concede a point because the other person might actually be right? Yes. And I'm thinking of your wife's observation that you're not such a great listener. And I'm thinking, well, maybe that's part of the problem. Yep. If you think acknowledging the other person might be right is a judo move, in other words, yep. another way to actually get them down on the floor and on the mat rather than a genuine concession. But it could be both, Jonathan. Well, what I was going to just come on to was to say, is there perhaps a difference between winning every argument, which is yep. what your, your book is about, and actually getting to the truth uh, uh, of an issue and learning what's right. And do you think, perhaps professionally, because you're so good at it, have you put sort of winning ahead of learning? It's a great question, and it's one of the ones that goes to the core of the book and the title. The title is very provocative. Mm. When I first put the cover up on social media, that was the response from kind of 20% of people. It was like, but why would you want to win every argument? You shouldn't. You should want to learn. And I get that, and I understand that, and I think there is huge value in finding common ground and learning new things and negotiating a middle ground. To the people who want to do that, I say buy someone else's books. <laughs> I am unashamedly saying that there are hundreds of books out there on negotiation and compromise and persuasion. This is not that book. This is a book that is going to teach you unashamedly, unapologetically how to win. And in my defense, I would say this. Look, there are situations where you might want to lose. But I think we downplay how many situations where you have to win. People treat argument like it's a choice. I was doing a Today program interview this morning, and, and Michelle Hussein made the point. She said, you know, I, I wonder, do we, should we want to win these arguments in a polarized time? Don't some people want to stay away from it? And it's a great question, but we actually live in a world where right now it's very hard to avoid some arguments. Yeah. You shouldn't want to avoid some arguments. Some arguments you have to win. And the examples I give of that, for example, if you are a prosecutor in court you trying to, to convict a murderer, you don't want to meet that murderer halfway and kind of hit, you know, you want to make sure the 12 jurors put this guy who you believe is a threat to society behind bars. If you're going for a job interview, which I consider a form of argument, you're making the case for yourself, you're trying to sell yourself, you might think to yourself, you know what, if I listen to these guys, maybe I'll realize that I'm not the best person for this job. <laughs> maybe the guy behind me should get the job. No, of course not. You're going to get the job. You're going to use whatever tools that I give you to get that job because you need that job. You need the income. Your family needs it, et cetera, et cetera. So I take your point. I'm not disputing the fact that in some areas you want to do that. I'm just saying that's not what my book's about, yeah. and I'm not apologizing for that. But just on the concession point, I do believe you can do both. Mm. I do believe that you can make a strategic concession. What the Greek school synchoresis, where it's talking about, where you say your, your back's against the wall, the other person's made a great point, too often we double down. We say, no, I will not concede. I say in the book, concede. Just say, great, I, you got me. I didn't, I didn't think of that point. 
but hold on, did you think of this point? Can I come back with a stronger point? Which is a very cynical and self-serving move. It's a strategic move. But I don't see why it's either or. While doing that, it doesn't have to be a dishonest move. It can be a genuine concession yeah. that I just didn't see that point. And actually, interestingly, you and I were having a conversation yesterday about Gary Lineker. Mm. And you made some interesting points that completely undermined stuff I'd been saying on TV for three days. I said, that's a fair point. Now, if we were doing that on TV, had we been on a panel and you'd done that, I wouldn't have disputed it. I would have said, yeah, that's a good point, Johnny Wade. Mehdi Hassan there, speaking to Jonathan Friedland back in March 2023. Mehdi's book is How to Win Every Argument, which might come in handy for you over the Christmas period if you've got any uncles and aunts joining you at the dinner table. Well, we've dipped into two weighty tomes there discussing the state of the world today, but what about the world of tomorrow? Back in September, we had a packed house at the Tabernacle Theatre in London at an audience ranging from curious newbies to tech thought leaders who all wanted to hear more about AI from one man, Mustafa Suleiman. As co-founder of DeepMind and Inflection AI, Suleiman has had an insider's front seat to the artificial intelligence revolution. His book, The Coming Wave, Technology, Power and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma, asks questions about whether society is prepared for such rapid change. He joins Zani Minton Bellows, editor-in-chief of The Economist, to talk about it. Mustafa is actually not a computer geek. You didn't study computer code, right? You studied philosophy and theology at Oxford. So can you just give us the kind of potted history about how a man who studied philosophy and theology comes to be the co-founder of two tech companies? What are you doing? <laughs> well, I've always found philosophy a systems thinking tool. It enables me to be rigorous and clear about what I think. And you know, right from the very outset, I think when I was 19, I actually dropped out of my philosophy degree. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, I didn't finish. And I was really motivated by the impact that I could have in the world. I left to help start a charity. Um, at the time, it was a telephone counseling service um, called Muslim Youth Helpline. And it was a secular, uh, that I was a, an atheist, even though I'd grown up uh, with a Muslim background. Uh, it was a secular service that was designed to provide faith and culturally sensitive um, support to young British Muslims. This was in 2003. And, you know, I, I found myself at Oxford studying this very theoretical, esoteric, you know, set of ideas. And I wanted to put real things into practice in terms of my ethics. And that was why I went to, you know, start the helpline and worked on that as a volunteer for three years. Uh, I soon got, you know, frustrated about the scale of impact um, in our nonprofit. Uh, and I worked briefly for the mayor of London at the time, Ken Livingston, um, as a human rights policy officer. Um, and, you know, that was, that was inspiring, but I was also struggling with the scale of impact. I, I, I realized that, you know, if, if I didn't capture what really makes us organized and effective as a species, the profit incentive, then I was going to miss one of the most important things to happen in my lifetime. And um, at the time, I saw the rise of Facebook. This was sort of around 2007, 2008. And it had grown in the space of two years to 100 million monthly active users. And I was totally blown away at how quickly this was growing out of seemingly nowhere, something completely new to me. And so I set about on a quest to find anyone and everyone that would speak to me 
to teach me about technology. I had started a bunch of businesses before that, two different businesses. One, actually a technology company selling electronic point-of-sale systems, actually around here in Notting Hill, uh, in restaurants, uh, trying to put Wi-Fi infrastructure in there and so on. That was, a, that was unsuccessful. That was ahead of its time. Um, and so I was looking for people who I could, you know, form a new partnership with and figure out how to take advantage of, of, of technology. Uh, and that's where I met my friend and co-founder of DeepMind, Demis Asabis, because he was the brother of my best friend at the time from school. Um, and he was just finishing his PhD uh, in neuroscience at UCL, and we got together, and, you know, the rest is history. And at that time, you know, back in 2010, you had between you, and there was another co-founder, right, Shane, like the three of you had the ambition that you were going to create an artificial intelligence that was, you know, capable of replicating human intelligence or even succeeding it. So just think, this was 13 years ago. The rest of us didn't even know this stuff was really going on. You're, you're in your, where is it, in Regent Square somewhere. Did you imagine that by 2023, the world would have what we have now? I mean... In a way, yes. It, it was difficult for us to imagine exactly how it would unfold, but we made a very big bet on deep learning, uh, which is one of the primary tools that is powering this new revolution, um, before anybody was involved in deep learning. So the, the current chief scientist and co-founder of OpenAI, the creators of ChatGPT, was one of our interns uh, back in 2011. Jeffrey Hinton, who was the, who subsequently became the um, one of the heads of AI at Google and is known now as the godfather of AI, recently in the press, worried about the consequences. He was our first advisor, our paid advisor. I think his salary was £25,000 a year to advise us. So I think three of the six co-founders of OpenAI at some point passed through DeepMind, either to give talks or were actually members of the team. So really, it was incredibly about timing. You know, we got the timing absolutely right. We were way ahead of the curve at that moment, and somehow we managed to hang on. So you, you were there for a while, and then let's fast forward a bit. Um, you can read the rest of this in the book. You, you now have co-founded and run Inflection AI, and you are creating an AI called Pi, which you can interact with, if you like. Tell us what Pi does. So Pi stands for personal intelligence, and I believe that over the next few years, everybody is going to have their own personal AI. There are going to be hundreds of thousands of AIs in the world. They'll represent businesses, they'll represent brands, every government will have its own AI, every nonprofit, every musician, artist, record label, everything that is now represented by a website or an app is soon going to be represented by an interactive conversational intelligence service that represents the brand values and the ideas of whatever organization is out there. And we believe that at the same time, everybody will want their own personal AI, one that is on your side, in your corner, helping you to be more organized, helping you to make sense of the world. Um, it really is going to function as almost like a chief of staff or you know, prioritizing, planning, teaching, supporting, supporting you. So that sounds great. Um, what does it actually mean, though, in practice? Because so often this conversation about AI, it's at this point, then it turns into the apocalyptic. We're going to end up you know, wiping ourselves out because there'll be some rogue person you know, sitting in a garage somewhere who will you know, unleash a virus that will kill us all. So before we get to all of that stuff, in, let's say, 
I don't know, five years. I mean, you've said within the next three to five years, you think AI will reach human-level capability across a variety of tasks. Perhaps not everything, but a variety. So paint a picture for us of what life will be like in five years, at 2028. I mean, first of all, will it be you and me here, or will there be the kind of Mustafa AI and the, and the Zani bot? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me let me just go back ten years, just to to give you a sense for what has already happened and why the predictions that I'll make, I think, are plausible. So the deep learning revolution enabled us to make sense of raw, messy data. So we could use AIs to interpret the content of images, classify whether an image contains dogs or cats, what those pixels actually mean. We can use it to understand speech. So when you dictate into your phone and it transcribes it and records perfect text, we can use it to do language translation. All of these are classification tasks. We're essentially teaching the models to understand the messy, complicated world of raw input data well enough to understand the objects inside that data. That was the classification revolution, the first 10 years. Now we're in the generative revolution, right? So these models are now producing new images that you've never seen before. They're producing new text that you've never seen before. They can generate pieces of music. And that's because it's the flip side of that coin. The first stage is understanding and classifying, if you like. The second stage, having done that well enough, you can then ask the AI to say, given that you understand you know, what a dog looks like, now generate me a dog with your idea of pink, with your idea of yellow spots, or whatever. And that is an interpolation. It's a prediction of the space between two or three or four concepts. And that's what's produced this generative AI revolution in all of the modalities. As we apply more computation to this process, so we're basically stacking much, much larger AI models, and we're stacking much, much larger data, the accuracy and the quality of these generative AIs gets much, much better. So just to give you a sense of the trajectory we're on with respect to computation. Over the last 10 years, every single year, the amount of compute that we have used for the cutting edge AI models has grown by 10x. So 10x, 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 10 times in a row. And that is unprecedented in technology history. Nowhere else have we seen a trajectory anything like that. Over the next five years, we'll add probably three or four orders of magnitude, basically another 1,000 times the compute that you see used today to produce GPT-4, or the chat model that you might interact with. And it's really important to understand that. That might be a technical detail or something, but it's important to like sort of grasp that because when people talk about GPT-3 or GPT-3.5 or GPT-4, the distance between those models is in fact 10 times compute. It's not incremental, it's exponential. And so the difference between GPT-4 and GPT-2 is in fact 100 times worth of compute. The largest compute infrastructures in the world basically to learn all the relationships between all the inputs of all of this raw data. So what, in, does that mean? In the, what does that entail and enable them to do? In the next phase, we'll go from being able to perfectly generate, so speech will be perfect, video generation will be perfect, image generation will be perfect, language generation will be perfect, to now being able to plan across multiple 
time horizon. So at the moment, you could only say to a model, give me you know, a poem in the style of X. Give me a new image that matches these two styles. It's a sort of one-shot prediction. Next, you'll be able to say, generate me a new product, right? In order to do that, you would need to have the AI go off and do research to you know, look at the market and see what was potentially going to sell. What are people talking about at the moment? It would then need to generate a new image of what that product might look like compared to other images so that it was different and unique. It would then need to go and contact a manufacturer and say, here's the blueprint. This is what I want you to make. It might negotiate with that manufacturer to get the best possible price and then go and market it and sell it. Those are the capabilities that are going to arrive you know, approximately in the next five years. It won't be able to do each of those automatically, independently. There will be no autonomy in that system. But certainly, those individual tasks are likely to emerge. So that means that presumably the process of innovation becomes much, much more efficient. The process of managing things becomes much more efficient. What does that mean? And let's, let's stick with the upside for the moment. I, will, I promise you we'll get to all the downsides, of which there are many. But, <laughs> but what is that going to enable us to do? I mean, people talk about... AI will help us solve climate change. AI will lead to tremendous you know, improvements in healthcare. Just talk us through what some of those things might be so we can see the upside. Intelligence has been the engine of creation. Everything that you see around you here is the product of us interacting with some environment to make a more efficient, a, more, a cheaper table, for example, or a new iPad. If you look back at history, you know, today we're able to create, we're able to produce a kilo of grain with just 2% of the labor that was required to produce that same one kilo of grain 100 years ago. So the trajectory of technologies and scientific invention in general means that things are getting cheaper and easier to make. And that means huge productivity gains, right? The insights, the intelligence that goes into all of the improvements in agriculture, which give us more with less, are the same tools that we're now inventing with respect to intelligence. So for example, to stay on the theme of agriculture, it should mean that we're able to produce new crops that are drought resistant, that are pest resistant, that are in general more resilient. We should be able to, to tackle, for example, climate change. And we've seen many applications of AI where we're optimizing in existing industrial systems. We're taking the same big cooling infrastructure, for example, and we're making it much more efficient. Again, we're doing more with less. So in every area from healthcare to education to transportation, we're very likely over the next two to three decades to see massive efficiencies. Invention, think of it as the interpolation I described with respect to the images. The, 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 the AI is guessing the space between the dog, the pink color, and the yellow spots. It's imagining something it's never seen before. And that's exactly what we want from AI. We want to discover new knowledge. We want it to invent new types of science, new solutions to problems. And I think that's really what we're likely to get. We, I believe that if we can get that right, we're headed towards an era of radical abundance. Imagine every great scientist, every entrepreneur, you know, every person having the best possible aid, you know, scientific advisor, research assistant, chief of staff, tutor, 
coach, confidant, each of those roles that are today the you know, exclusive preserve of the wealthy and the educated and those of us who live in peaceful, civilized societies, those roles, those capabilities, that intelligence is gonna be widely available to everybody in the world. Just as today, no matter whether you are a, a, you know, a millionaire or you earn a regular salary, we all get exactly the same access to the best smartphone and the best laptop. That's an incredibly meritocratic story, which we kind of have to internalize. You know, the best hardware in the world, no matter how rich you are, is available to at least the top two billion people. And that is, I think, that is going to be the story that we see with respect to intelligence. All right, enough upbeat stuff. <laughs> that, was, that was, we've had 20 minutes of upbeat, which is more than you've had in most of the, the <laughs> interviews you've done. Uh, but you didn't call your book, you know, The Coming Nirvana. You called it The Coming Wave. And I'm told that you were thinking that the original title was going to be Containment is Not Possible. I'm glad you didn't call it that. <laughs> it wouldn't have sold so well. Uh, but explain the argument you're making is not actually Nirvana is around the corner. In fact, it's a much, much more subtle argument than that. So tell us what the downsides are and what it is that your book, the focus on containment is in the book is about. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think I'm pretty wide-eyed and honest about the potential risks. And, you know, we, if, if you take the trajectory that I predicted, that more powerful models are going to get smaller, cheaper, and easier to use, which is the history of the transistor, which is the history of every technology and, you know, value, basically, that we've created in the world. If it's useful, then it tends to get cheaper, and therefore it spreads far and wide. And in general, so far, that has delivered immense benefits to everybody in the world, and it's something to be celebrated. Proliferation, so far, has been a really, really good thing. But the flip side is that if these are really powerful tools, they could ultimately empower a vast array of bad actors to destabilize our world. You know, everybody has an agenda, has a set of political beliefs, religious beliefs, cultural ideas, and they're now gonna have an easier time of advocating for it. You know, so at the extreme end of the spectrum, you know, there are certain aspects of these models which provide really good coaching on how to manufacture biological and chemical weapons. It's one of the capabilities that all of us developing large language models over the last year have observed. They've been trained on all of the data on the internet, and much of that information contains potentially harmful things. That's a relatively easy thing to control and take out of the model, at least when you're using a model that is manufactured by one of the big companies. They want to abide by the law, they don't want to cause harm. So we basically exclude them from the training data and we prevent those capabilities. The challenge that we have is that everybody wants to get access to these models and so they're widely available in open source. You know, you can actually download the code to run, albeit smaller versions of Pi or ChatGPT, for no cost. And if that trajectory continues over 10 years, you get much, much more powerful models that are much smaller and more you know, transferable. And you know, people then who want to use them to cause harm have an easier time of it. I think that's a really important distinction that there are you know, the leading companies, you, Google DeepMind, you know, OpenAI, who have the biggest models now, and there are a relatively small number of these ones, and they are bigger and more powerful, but not far behind are a whole bunch of open source ones. And so the question is then for your containment, can you 
prevent the open source ones, which will potentially be available to the you know, angry teenager in his garage or her garage, can those ones be controlled or not? Okay, the, the darker side of my prediction is that these are fundamentally ideas. You know, they're, they're intellectual property. It's knowledge and know-how. An algorithm is something that can largely be expressed on three sheets of paper and actually is readily understandable to most people. I mean, it's a little bit abstract, but it, you can wrap your head around it. The implementation mechanism you know, requires access to vast amounts of compute today. But if in time you remove that constraint and you can actually run it on a phone, which you ultimately will be able to do in a decade, then that's where the containment challenge you know, comes into view. And I think that there are also risks of the centralized question. Right? This is clearly going to confer power on those who are building these models and running them, you know, my own company included, Google, and the other big tech providers. So we don't eliminate risk simply by addressing the open source community. We also have to figure out what the relationship is between these super powerful tech companies that have lots of resources and the nation state itself, which is ultimately responsible for holding us accountable. Mustafa Suleiman there, discussing his book, The Coming Wave, with Zani Minton Beddoes. Some fascinating thoughts to dig into from Mustafa, along with Mehdi Hassan and Naomi Klein. You can find all of their books and a few more in the Intelligence Squared 12 Books of Christmas list, which we'll link to in the episode description. And we'll be exploring a few more in this list in the run-up to Christmas too, so do join us for those. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared Holiday Reads. I've been Faye Edavita. And I've been Connor Boyle. Thanks for joining us.